Well, friends, I do got to say that not being with you all last week was actually kind of hard. It was hard, uh, not just because I enjoy meeting and gathering together and not just hard because uh, being together as a church is literally my favorite time of the entire week. Uh, because, but it was hard because I, I didn't get to preach. I, I think it should be a, a given that a preacher or a pastor who preaches mostly should love preaching. I hope that you assume that. But it was hard to not be able to be here to preach, especially this text that we're going to be looking at today. And part of that was because I think, and, and again, I'm no fortune teller or interpreter of visions. I'm no prophet, I don't think. But I, I do wonder if the, Lord, the reason the Lord hindered us from gathering last week is so that I would have another week to be able to sit on this text and to be able to think about it and process it and be ready to hand it to you today. Because I think that this passages, these passages in Acts 10 and 11 are some of the most foundational passages in, in all of the Bible for understanding how we are to live today. And I want to open that time, or at least press us in this time, by asking you a question, like I often do. And the question is this. As a Christian, now I realize if you're here and you're not a Christian, listen in. That's okay. We want you to. But those of you who are Christians, as a Christian, what do you do or or how do you answer a world, a culture, a society that is telling you that the only way to have peace and justice at the same time in this world between people who are different than each other Specifically, with ethnicity, what do you say to a culture that tells you the only way to peace and justice is for you to become an anti-racist? What is an anti-racist? Well, I'll let the proponents of it speak for themselves. Ibram X. Kendi says in his book, How to Be Anti-Racist, To be anti-racist is to challenge the racist policies that plague racialized ethnic groups across the world. To be anti-racist is to view the inequities between all racialized ethnic groups as a problem of policy. Ijoma Aluo, in her book, So You Want to Talk About Race, says this, If you live in this system of white supremacy, you are either fighting the system or you are complicit. There is no neutrality to be had towards systems of injustice. It is not something you can just opt out of. Raven Crass, in her article, What Does It Mean to Be Woke?, says, By default, we all project problematic ideologies that reinforce the social ills of our society. As a result, we are all a part of the problem and must unlearn what we have learned to be a part of the solution. With that being said, there is no room for ego in the realm of academia. It prohibits proper intellectual growth and development. Wokeness necessitates the ability to consistently check one's own privilege and perspective. And as if you all thought this was new, Audre Lorde said back in 1980, We have all been programmed to respond to the human differences between us with fear and loathing, and to handle that difference in one of three ways. Ignore it, and if that is not possible, copy it if we think it is dominant, or destroy it if we think it is subordinate. And here's the key, listen to what he says. But we have no patterns for relating across human differences as equals. And friends, that's what it comes down to. That's what it comes down to in today's world. Is that the world tells us that there are no patterns for relating to one another as equals in spite of our differences. So Christian, how do you respond? Is this the way forward? Is the way forward for us as followers of Jesus... To grab hold of the world's recommendations, the world's literature, the world's philosophies in order to find peace and justice. 
Well, friends, today as we open our Bibles, here's what I want to do. It's very simple. I want to allow the hound of heaven to let him loose on the wolves of this world. What I mean by that is I want to let Jesus Christ loose from this text, from his word, so that he may, as you will see, destroy the philosophies and the methodologies for this world. And the main point of it is all is this. Is this. The main point of this passage, the main thing I want us to understand as a church is this, is that the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is the only place on earth where people of different ethnicities and different backgrounds and different economic statuses and different preferences. The kingdom of Jesus is the only place on earth where those people can find family and find true peace and true justice. Which is in some ways what the whole second half of the book of Acts is all about. So we've been going up through Acts up until at least chapter 9. You've noticed, hopefully you've noticed, that, that the book of Acts is a very Jewish book. It is, it is has a lot of Jewishness to it. And this is part of Jesus' plan from the beginning, right? He told his apostles, those who would be witnesses to him, that, that they would go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, which are these places that have been really affected, obviously, by the Jewish religion. But now, as we come to chapters 10 and 11, we saw this a couple weeks ago, we're going to see it even more today, we find... That something new is beginning. That a new frontier is going to be crossed. And it's going to deal here at the outset with the biggest problem. And what we find in these two chapters of Acts 10 and 11 changes everything. It helps us understand unity and ethnicity differently. It helps us understand evangelism and missions differently. And it even helps us understand salvation and conversion. You remember a couple of weeks ago that we met, we re-met Peter and met a new man named Cornelius and they both had these visions that, as they were apart. And it was because of these two visions that they end up being brought together. Now both men are going to recap their visions for us, so I won't go into all the details and remind you because we'll see them in the text here today. But we find in this passage now why God gave Cornelius, this Italian soldier, a Gentile, a vision. And why he gave Peter, the main leader of the church in Jerusalem, a vision. And how he intends to bring them together to start something brand new. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We're going to jump back in at verse 23. Now, last time we were together, I read the first half of verse 23. We're going to start in the second half of verse 23. It's kind of a weird verse, split down the middle between two paragraphs. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts 10. Verse 23 is where I'm going to begin reading in a moment. If you didn't bring a Bible of your own, Acts 10 in the Pew Bible is on page 864. You can turn there. Let me invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning once more. Friends, this is the word of the Lord to us today from Acts 10, 23. I'm going to be reading through verse 33. The next day he rose and went away with them. The he, let me clarify this real quick. The he there's Peter. The next day he, Peter, rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house, 
At the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered by God before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So I read there the first ten verses, just kind of get us going to what you whistle uh, in this passage. But really, we're going to go all the way through chapter 11, verse 18. And, and really, we're going to see two scenes. We're going to see this first scene here with Peter and Cornelius at Cornelius' house with all Cornelius' family and friends. And what happens there? And then next, we're going to see in chapter 11, Peter going back to Jerusalem and how he encounters those of a Jewish background when he gets there. And so really, this section kind of breaks up into two parts. So if you want to take notes, these are going to be the two sections of the sermon. First, we find witnessing to the nations. Witnessing to the nations. We see that in verses 23 through 48 of chapter 10. And second, we're going to see witnessing for the nations. Witnessing for the nations in chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. You may notice in your bulletin that we've titled this sermon, Every Nation Welcomed In. But my prayer by the end of the message is that you'll see this, and you can use it as a subtitle if, you're, if you'd like. But that you would see that being a Christian is better than being an anti-racist. So let's begin to get at that by looking first at the witnessing to the nations. You see there in those first few verses, 23 through 24, that Peter goes with several friends from Joppa. These would have been Jewish Christians who go with Peter and they make their way to Cornelius' house. It says there that Cornelius is waiting, that he's expecting them. And you've got to remember or realize here that Cornelius doesn't have, you know, fine friends and he doesn't have a cell phone or an email. He has no idea if the guys that he sent to get Peter have made it or not. But it still says that he is expectantly, expectantly waiting and he's waiting so expectantly that he goes and he gets his family and his friends to come and gather with him. Now, we don't know how long they were waiting other than he says later on, recapping his story, that it was four days ago. But we find there that he is expectantly waiting. And I just want to stop here because I, I want to say this. To those of you who, who are here today who would not consider yourself a Christian, that there's something to be found here in Cornelius' waiting. And I would invite you in the same way to wait and see what the Lord may do as we continue to walk through this text. And so Peter makes it. He comes in with his friends. And how does Cornelius respond? We see there that he falls down. At Peter's feet. And this is something that we're going to see happen at various times throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Really, as Peter and Paul and some of the other Christians make their ways into these new places, these Gentile places, they find just kind of off the bat this, this foundational misunderstanding that those who are coming to be witnesses are meant to be worshipped. And really this, this misunderstanding comes from the pagan religions that many of these Gentiles are coming from. That they would worship a multiplicity of gods. And so Cornelius says, well, well, the angel came and told me to go get this guy Peter. And so Peter has now showed up. Man, he must be the guy. He must be the very one that can bring me forgiveness. Peter says, stand up. I'm just a man like you, bro. I'm not the one to be worshipped, but I'm a witness to the one to be worshipped. Much of the same way that John the Baptist would say in his coming before Christ, there's one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to tie. Peter says, I, I've come as a witness to the one that you need to bow down to. But before Peter gets into that, he points out the problem. You see there in verse 28, he says, you yourselves know because the Jewish religion was common and people knew about it, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. Now, what's Peter getting at here? 
Well, really, he's getting at God's prescription in the law. When he says it's unlawful, he's not talking about the law of the land. He's not talking about the Roman law. He's talking about God's law. The Bible lays out that it was wrong for Jews to associate with Gentiles and also associate with the things that they were about, the food that they would eat, the practices that they had partaken in. And we see that God made this, this prohibition for them because as you read the Old Testament, you find that the Jewish people really struggle with this. That every time they start intermingling with people of other nations, they begin to bow down and start worshiping the gods of those nations. And so really, the reason that God puts this prohibition in place is not because he hates the nations, but because he knows how fickle the hearts of his people are. And so, he wants to keep them clean and keep them separate so that... He may bring salvation through them. And that's what we're going to see here in a moment. But it is interesting. It's worth pointing out here that, that Peter does say that it's wrong for him to associate or visit with. That, that is to be friend or to go into partnership with, to mingle with anyone of another nation. Now this word nation is going to come up twice in this text. But what's interesting, and some of your translations may translate them differently. In the Greek, the two mentions of nations are actually different words. And so I'm not really sure why the translators of the ESV didn't differentiate that, but it would be helpful. Because the mention of nation here is a focus on the Gentile aspect of it, the pagan aspect of it. What, what Peter is literally saying here, it's wrong for a person who worships Yahweh to now associate with somebody who does not worship him but worships false gods. And so the issue that Peter's bringing up is an issue of religion. It's not the issue of them hating on other nations, but it's an issue of religion, an issue of worship. But that's not what's most important here. I realize I just focused on it for a second, but that's not what's most important. What's most important is what Peter says after it. He says, but God, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we, we honed in on these two words. And they get at this idea of defilement. Peter's beginning to now understand the vision that he's been given. That God would call him to go to people that would commonly be known of as defiled and unclean according to the Jewish religion. But it is wrong for Peter to show up and to act as such. It is wrong for him to disassociate himself because God is now doing something new. So we see there, he says, why have you sent me? Why am I showing up? You see, Peter still doesn't fully understand the vision, does he? And Cornelius recaps what has happened there in verses 30 through 33. Now this is important to point out because I didn't a few weeks ago. But this vision that Cornelius has is not uncommon. This, this thing that happens to Cornelius still happens today, at least there's much testimony to it. And I want to point it out here because it, it reminds us of the power of God and what he actually does here. As many missionaries today make their way to unreached peoples, make their way to what we call frontier missions work, to nations and to peoples and to tribes that have never heard about Jesus, often they hear when they show up that, oh, just before you got here, several of us had dreams and had visions. And there was this man in bright clothing who showed up in our dream and told us that there would be somebody coming who would share a message of hope with us. What do you got to say? Now, I'm not here to dispute the validity of those. Personally, I think they're true. But I bring that up to point out here the sovereignty and the very power of God to push his gospel forward. So often, especially in the Western church, we believe that it's up to us to build the kingdom of God. But one of the underlying things that we learned at the very beginning of this book is that it is King Jesus who builds his kingdom. We're just the bricks that get to be put in place. And so what we see here is that God himself has already been at work to prepare the way for Peter to come. And so Cornelius says, hey man, tell us what you have been commanded to say by the Lord. Now, Cornelius doesn't realize what he's saying just yet and using Lord there, Master. What have you been commanded to say by the Master? But Peter knows. 
Peter remembers what Jesus commanded him to say. That he would go and teach the people of all nations to obey all that Jesus had taught. And that's why we find Peter's response there picking up in verse 34. Let me read 34 through 43 for us. So Peter opened his mouth. I love how Luke just kind of makes it clear, right? So Peter, he just opened his mouth. This is what he says. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that I'm sorry, as for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, that they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people. And to testify that he is the appointed, the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Friends, this is the foundation. This is the foundation. Not just of the gospel itself, but for understanding what it means to be gospel people, to be Godward people. And it's right there as Peter opens his mouth. He says, now that I've heard the vision that you had, Cornelius, I truly, I understand what was happening to me and why God said what he said to me and why he has sent me here. And this is it. What does he say? Look back at verse 34. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Friends, that's the second word, word, use of the word nations in our English translation. But this is another word than we used before. It's the Greek word ethnos. Ethnos. Sound familiar? It's where we get our word ethnicities. What we find here is death to any prejudice, any ethnic partiality, any so-called racism. It's right here. And so my question for you as we consider these things is, is God's word sufficient? Is it enough? And does it instruct us in how to live in this world? And I would submit to you that this very verse tells us all that we need to know. That God himself, the one who created every inch of this universe, who created every one of us and every person around the world who has ever lived and ever will live, no matter how much melanin is in their body, no matter what nation they are born in, no matter what continent they come from, that he shows no partiality. but people of all ethnicities who turn to him, who fear him, who follow him, who obey him, are welcomed in. So the question is, is that sufficient for us? Does that do enough for you? It does enough for Peter. That's why he starts preaching. Look at what he says. I'm not going to go back through it all, but let me point it out. In verse 36, he says, Jesus is the word that's proclaimed by God to the Jews. He was first proclaimed to them. He, he, he preached good news through Jesus. You notice there that Luke kind of inserts this parenthesis that he is Lord of all. As if to say, hey, he's not just Lord of the Jews. He's Lord of all. 
Next we see him talk about there in 37 38, this baptism, which acted as an anointing of Jesus. That in Jesus' baptism, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. And we see in Luke's gospel, you go back and read it, we see so often that Jesus ministers through the power of the Spirit. He was led by the power of the Spirit. He heals in the power of the Spirit. And this is what Peter talks about next in the ministry of Jesus. That Peter saw it himself. But then he said that the Jews put him to death. Now this is key to understanding where Peter is about to go. He says that it was the Jews who put him to death. You remember that this is, has been the crux of the conviction that Peter has been told to bring about to the Jews. Every time he gets up and talks or one of the boys gets up and talks to the Jews, what do they point out? You killed him. The condemnation that came upon the Jews was the fact that they, as a people, collectively had put Jesus to death. But God. Peter does not miss the resurrection. It is key to understanding the gospel and it is key to preaching it. God raised him up. And he appeared to the apostles, commanding them to preach. But what was it now that Peter was to preach? To the Jews, he preached, you killed him. But he can't do that to the Gentiles, can he? They weren't there. They're not the Jews. So what is it that Peter has been commanded to preach? Go back and look at 42 and 43. Two things. First, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, that being Jesus, is the one appointed by God. That the God of the universe has made Jesus what? To be judge of the living and the dead. So the condemnation that is coming, the wrath that is coming upon the Gentiles, is not because they put Jesus to death in an actual sense. But the condemnation and the wrath of God that is coming upon the Gentiles is coming because Jesus is the judge of the entire earth. He is the judge of all people. And all peoples are born into sin. And so they stand condemned before the judge. But he's not just the judge. Look at verse 43. To him... All the Jesus, again, to him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That this Jesus is not just the judge, but he is also the justifier. He is also the savior, the one who can make you right for God. Friends, this is the very very foundation, the very, the very nugget of a gospel presentation. Those of you who are looking, uh, how, how do I share the gospel with my neighbors? How do I share the gospel with my co-workers? How do I share the gospel with my brother or sister or my mom or dad or uncle or aunt? How do I, how do I speak the gospel? Here it is, is the very essence of understanding the gospel. That Jesus, as the one who came and lived perfectly and then died and rose again, has been appointed by God in doing such as the very judge of the world. But at the same time, that's the bad news. But at the same time, all who turn to him and trust in his work are made right. That's what the word justified means, that they are made right before God. They receive forgiveness of sins through his name. It's reminiscent of what Peter said back in chapter 4, verse 12, that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. And then we get to this interesting part. And it's kind of, I guess, probably every preacher's prayer, maybe at some point. But Peter can't even finish. He can't finish the sermon because the Holy Spirit just shows up. Look back at verse 44 through 48. While Peter was still saying these things, I I like to imagine he's halfway through a sentence, right? While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. 
Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So Peter keeps still talking, and the Holy Spirit starts falling, and things start going crazy. Not, not like Pentecostal crazy. I know some of y'all like that. but No, he, he, the Holy Spirit comes as he's come before. And we, we've seen this happen, right, every time in this book. And, and what it is is every time God begins to do a new work, every time he begins to do something new and expanding the kingdom, the Holy Spirit comes in a fresh and new way. And that's exactly what we see here. And there's, there's two effects we see come out. First, those folks who had come with Peter from Joppa, the, the Jewish Christians, they're amazed. They're taken aback. They're like, what has just happened? The Holy Spirit has come on these Gentiles the same way it came on us. This is going to become key in Peter's later testimony. But secondly, we see the Gentiles display the coming of the Spirit. There's, there's proof that they've been inhabited by the Holy Spirit. First, it says they're speaking in tongues. Second, it says they're extolling God. Now, there's much debate, much ink has been spilt over this idea of speaking in tongues. Are they speaking in tongues like the apostles did back in Acts 2 when they were speaking other languages? Maybe. Or are they speaking some heavenly language? Perhaps. The text isn't clear, so I'm not going to postulate on it. What can tend to happen, though, what often does happen among Christians when we get to passages like these or 1 Corinthians and it starts talking about speaking in tongues is we can miss kind of the, the point of it all. And the point of it all is there in the second half, the second thing that happens. They're extolling God. That is that they're lifting God up. They are making much of God. They are exalting Him and praising Him. It doesn't really matter what kind of tongues they're speaking in. What matters is what they're actually saying. And what they're saying is that God is God of all. That Yahweh is King. That Jesus is the judge and justifier. And He is worthy of praise. These people who had denied God and worshipped false religions have now turned to Him. And exhibit that the Holy Spirit has come and saved them. And that's where we get Peter's baptism idea here. Now a lot of folks like to take passages like this. And this is a key one in the book of Acts. And say that this encourages what has commonly been called as spontaneous baptism. That is, if anyone professes faith in Christ, we should baptize them on the spot. That there should be no time of waiting between conversion or profession of faith and baptizing someone. But they need to be baptized right away. And they like to use texts like this to make that argument. But I'd like to point out a few things here just to kind of clear that up about why we don't do that around here. The first is that to make that argument from this passage is to actually miss the point of baptism in the book of Acts. It's actually to miss the point of what Luke's actually trying to teach us. See, there are thousands of baptisms in the book of Acts that Luke tells us nothing about. So why does he point out this one? Why does he bring it up here? And it gets at the very thing that Luke is trying to teach us in giving us this story. He's not giving us a, a, a recipe for church life today. But he is telling us the story of how the Holy Spirit is continually expanding and empowering the apostles to expand the kingdom of God. The central point for why the Holy Spirit comes and they are baptized is to show that the Gentiles have now been included. That's number one. Number two, and there's four things here if you want to write these down. There are four essential elements that are often overlooked in this presentation. Number one, they have faith. We see this in verse 43. As Peter preaches that they would have forgiveness of sins through his name. They must believe. And so they do. Next we see the Holy Spirit is received. This is key. Baptize, baptism isn't imparted initially, but the Holy Spirit is initially received. You see that in verses 44 and 45. Next, then we see baptism in 47 and 48. But finally we're going to see in the foundation for it all, the foundation really for this whole passage is way at the end. Chapter 11, verse 18. I'll give you a, a, a teaser for what's there. Repentance. Repentance is the mark of life. It is the mark that someone has been redeemed if they turn. That's what repentance means, to turn to Jesus. 
And so we see here that the main point of this passage isn't baptize anyone and everyone who says, I love Jesus. But that it marks the life of someone who has turned to Jesus. They have turned in repentance. They have received the gift of the Spirit. And they have shown it through faith in Christ. The main point of this passage is highlighting the relationships that are present. First, you have the Gentiles who are not followers of Christ. This is all of us in our natural state. But you also have the church represented here by Peter, the Christian, who speaks. This is what Paul brings up later in Romans 10. How will they know unless they hear? And so Peter comes and he tells. But what we often forget in the modern church is the third person of this relationship, and that is God himself. That God himself then saves the people through the preaching of the word. So the main point of what Luke is trying to tell us here is not to give us a prescription on how to baptize people, but to show us that the Gentiles who were far off have now been welcomed in. And this becomes the whole problem for Peter as he returns to Jerusalem. So let's look at witnessing for the nations in chapter 11. Point two, witnessing for the nations. Let me start by just reading the first three verses. Now the apostles and the brothers... So that's all the Christians at this point, with the exception of Peter and Cornelius' family. Who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. We see first what they heard. What they heard is that the Gentiles had received the word. That word received there in the Greek means to take hold of, to make it your own, to grab onto it and and to squeeze it. And so what, what the Jewish believers have now heard is that the Gentiles have also grabbed on to the word of God just as they had. It shows their receptivity to it. I pray that we would be the same. And so Peter shows back up after this and these high Hebrews, known as the circumcision party, have a problem with Peter. And really this problem all centers on their identity. Their identity. Do you notice what they say there? You ate with uncircumcised men. You you went to them and you ate with them. See, the issue here is not the, the religious law. It's not this association in the way that, that Peter had thought about it, but it's, it's fundamentally different. And it has to do with this idea of identity. And this really, if I could just point it out as pointed as possible, this really is just a, a, an example of ethnic partiality. That, that these Jewish Christians would say, well, if you're really going to be like one of us, you common, dirty, defiled people, then you have to be circumcised, you have to... Only eat clean food, and you have to obey the law just like we do. You have to look just like us if you're really going to follow Jesus. They've taken what God created as good, the law, and used it now as their way to bring division. Again, it's all about identity. These Jewish Christians had not gotten around their heads yet that their identity was found in Christ. That all of the former things were no longer sufficient to give them meaning and purpose and life. But it was Christ who now would give them everything that they needed. And so we see this ethnic partiality kind of rise to the surface of treating the nations as if they are not equals or welcome in the family of God. Friends, the way that we kill this, the way that Peter is going to kill this, is by speaking of the hope of Christ. By speaking of the hope that it was always God's plan. This is why you often don't hear me use the term race or racial reconciliation. It's because what we find in Genesis 1 is that there is one race. It is the race of mankind. And we have common mothers, mother and father in Adam and Eve. And there is only one race. Now we look different. We have different amounts of melanin in our bodies. And we come from different places. That's ethnicity. But there is one single race. And God's plan has been 
from the fall to redeem a chosen race of people that represent all ethnicities and bring them into one huge family. This has always been God's plan to bring in the nations. You can go back and look at Genesis 12. When God calls Abram and his family specifically, he says, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. And it's Christ that has done it. We find now that God and what he is doing is sufficient for Peter. And so I present the question to you as we read this last section. Is it sufficient for us? In 4 through 14, Peter recaps everything that has happened. I won't take time to read all of it. I just want to point out the things he says that are different. There, He doesn't mention earlier. First, he knows God's sovereignty there in verses 11 and 12. He says, and behold, at that very moment, he, he, the, the way that God was working here is so apparent to Peter. He notes in verse 12 that he wasn't alone. He says, these six fellows came with me. They're witnesses to what I did and what God did through me. They were there. And then... Finally, in verse 14, he notes something unique about Cornelius' message that hasn't been brought up yet. Look at verse 14. This Cornelius talking. He, meaning Peter, will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And so we find that Peter tells them everything that happened exactly as it is. He gives them testimony. He witnesses to what took place. But that's not his defense for why they should stop being upset and why they should kill this partiality in their hearts. Verses 15 through 17 give us that. Let me read it for us. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized you with water. But you, I'm sorry, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should stand in God's way? What's Peter's defense here? I just started talking and the Holy Spirit started following. I remember Jesus' words about baptism, how John had baptized with water, but we were going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and that was to be the mark that we were His. And God gave them that same gift. Now some of you could really take up that verse this week, meditate on that, maybe have a deficient or a fearful view of the Holy Spirit. But Peter describes it here as a gift. Describes him, God in the Spirit, as a gift. So Peter says, I got out of the way. I got out of the way. What am I to do? If God is working and God shows no partiality and he's saving and he's redeeming, who am I? I'm just a witness to the one who's to be worshipped. So what effect does it have? This is key. I want you to see this. There were some Jews. That's a partiality in their heart. They didn't want to welcome those of a different ethnicity. They looked down upon them. They demanded that they conform to their preferences and their ways. And what changes them? Peter doesn't hand them a copy of how to be anti-racist. Peter doesn't have them go through some curriculum building a bridge. He says, look at what God did. Look at what God is doing. Look at how He is redeeming and how He is saving and how He is giving His Spirit and what does it do to those Jews? Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Silence. Good place to start. 
have too many people talking in our ears these days. Silence and then glorification. Why glorifying? Because God grants repentance that leads to life and it is a life of peace. And so let me present the question to you once more. In the face of what our world says, is what God says and what God is doing enough? Is the Bible enough? Is Scripture efficient and sufficient to accomplish the peace that we need in our world and in our individual hearts? Mary read it for us earlier, but let me read for us again Ephesians 2. I'm going to start back in verse 10 because it's important through 22. If you want to turn there, you can. It's on page 917 in the Pew Bible. I normally don't like to make you guys flip around a lot, but this may be a good time to go there. Ephesians 2, picking up in verse 10. I'm going to read all the way to 22 to answer my question and to help us understand what exactly God just did in Acts 10 and 11. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by, in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Hebrews 2.10 as we have been created for good works. What are those good works in Paul's mind? He tells us. That's what those verses are about. We see here that the fundamental problem between men is not one another. And let me make it as clear as possible. It doesn't matter how many white folks and black folks are reconciled. And become friends. If they are not reconciled to the God of the universe and eternity, it will not make a hill of beans. The reconciliation that we all need, despite how we look or where we're from, is reconciliation to God. And we find that reconciliation between men only comes when we are first reconciled to God. Is exactly what Christ has come to do. Friends, this is why we do not need the gospel plus this book or that book or this lecture or that TED talk. This is why the Bible is sufficient because it gives us the only means by which men find peace. It is through the blood of Christ. Of course we can learn. Of course we can grow. Of course we can help understand one another. And it's going to be hard and difficult. We're going to have to bear with each other. We're going to have to forgive one another. But foundationally, what we need to do all of that is the blood of Christ. When we come to that, we are found to be fellow citizens, saints 
members of God's household, a structure joined together, a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place of the Spirit of God. What we've seen here is that the gospel and the gospel alone can end ethnic partiality fully and completely. Not because it changes structures, changes policy, or changes law. But because it changes the very hearts of men. Where sin resides. Sure, the cultural will be affected. Sure, the structures will be influenced. But foundationally, why the gospel alone is all that can work is because it changes hearts. No law can do that. We find here that it is the kingdom of Jesus alone. It's the only place on earth where every ethnicity can be welcomed in to a family of peace. This is our new identity. Let us pray. Father, we do ask, God, that you would bring peace as only you can. God, we ask, Lord, that you would give us hope in these times, that we would be able to speak of the peace that comes from Christ alone. that we would look to him, that we would look to your word and trust your word as sufficient to give us hope, to give us answers, to give us ways to navigate awkward conversations. God, we pray and we ask that you would do the work that only you can through Christ. May your spirit come And work in us. Bind us together. As we look to that day when Christ returns. Drawing all peoples from all nations, tribes, and tongues to himself. That we we may worship forever in Emmanuel's land. We ask this in Jesus' precious, precious name. Amen.